Will you turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5? Matthew chapter 5. And we have some Bibles for anyone who needs them. These brothers are going to make their way to the back as they do. Just get their attention and they'll get one of those Bibles to you so you can follow along. It's marked at Matthew chapter 5, so you don't have to fumble around to find that. And let me say thank you to all of the music types, the instrumentalists and the vocalists for dealing with all of the props. And to all of you for your indulgence, because we normally have a platform up here. It's a little bit easier to see, but uh, because of Vacation Bible School starting tonight, that's why we have all of this. That'll be gone next week. But I'm glad it's here for you to see some of the handiwork of the folks that have worked very hard on that, to see that uh, it portends for a great uh, week for our young people. And if you're not participating in it, perhaps at least uh, pray that all will go well and that uh, many young people will come and hear about the Lord and some will come to the Lord as a result of our Vacation Bible School. One of the many benefits of living in the United States of America is that few Americans have ever experienced chronic hunger and thirst. Of course, all of us have been hungry and thirsty at times. But when, after it's been a few hours between lunch and dinner, we say something like, I'm starved, thankfully we don't mean it literally. If our children come in from playing outside on a hot day and they say, I'm dying of thirst, then we have the luxury of simply turning on the tap and that momentary thirst is satisfied. But throughout history and in parts of the world today, people do experience both hunger and thirst, and very literally. When God the Son, Jesus Christ, walked the earth in what we now call the Middle East, Palestine, Israel, 2,000 years ago, He entered a world that knew hunger and thirst. One commentator says wages were low if they existed at all. Unless men were of the aristocracy, they seldom grew fat on the fruit of honest labor. Many starved. Moreover, in a desert country where the sun was scorching and sand and windstorms were frequent, thirst was man's constant companion. And in his famous sermon that we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus said in verse 6 of Matthew chapter 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Physical hunger and thirst are intense longings, desires, yearnings for something that you know that you desperately need. The man who is physically hungry or thirsty knows precisely what he needs because he knows his condition. But here Jesus says he blesses those that have an appetite not for food or water, but for righteousness. Now what is this righteousness? Well, righteousness is a word that means to conform to a standard. To conform to a standard. New Testament scholar D.A. Carson says this righteousness then is conformity to the will of of God. Righteousness in general is conforming to a standard, and that standard in the Bible in particular is the will of God. Jesus is saying that those he blesses are those who have an intense desire to conform to God's standard for them. Our bodies tell us when we need food or water, but how do we know we need righteousness? How do we know that we are to have this intense longing, desire, yearning for conforming to the will of God? Well, it goes back to the very first of the eight blessings in this sermon that we call the Beatitudes, eight of them. And in verse 3, Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit. We saw a few weeks ago when we examined that verse that it means to recognize our own spiritual poverty, to see that we are spiritually bankrupt before God. And if we truly understand this, then it leads logically and it leads inevitably to the second beatitude, the second blessing in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. We saw in our message on that passage a few weeks ago that it means having seen our sin, we in turn then are sorrowful for it. But sorrowful not only for our own sin, but our eyes are open to the sin of the world around us and even sin in the church. This understanding 
And our internal response to sin, we saw then, makes Christians the saddest, most celebrant people in the world. Those who understand their spiritual condition before God are those who are humble in their dealings with others. And that's why the third of these eight blessings is blessed are the meek. So how is it that you know that you desperately need righteousness? Friends, we will only sense this need if we are people who are poor in spirit, which leads in turn to mourning for sin and meekness in our dealings with others, and then in turn hungering and thirsting for the solution, and that is righteousness. If we know our sin and spiritual poverty, if we mourn over it and live meekly because of it, we will hunger and thirst for righteousness. That is, we will seek that righteousness. We will yearn for that righteousness, and we will ask God to help us attain that righteousness. Let's bow then and ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for this sacred time now where we can quiet our hearts, settle our minds, and focus upon what you have for us in your word. Help us, Lord, to give our attention to your words. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. We pray in the name of the Lord Jesus. Amen. I invite you to take a look at the outline that we have inserted in the program that you should have received on the way in so that you can follow along as we exposit what the Lord is telling us in verse 6 of Matthew chapter 5. Our bodies tell us when we're hungry, and it's God's Word that tells us of our spiritual need. And that's why I say then in that outline, God's Word tells us what we are. God's Word tells us what we are. And in God's Word, telling us what we are, it does a couple of things. The first is this, it exposes our behavior. God's Word tells us what we are, and it does that in part by exposing our behavior. Now, this is what many people are most familiar with in the Bible. The do's and the don'ts, the thou shalt's and the thou shalt not's that regulate behavior. The Bible does indeed contain many commands and prohibitions, things we're to do and things we're not to do. There are 613 commands in the law given in the first part of your Bible that we call the Old Testament. And so as an example of the Ten Commandments that are part of that 613, you're familiar that the Bible says, You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Honor your father and your mother. Just three of the Ten Commandments, and those are just three of the 613 given in the first part of your Bible. Now, many of us read the Ten Commandments, and we think that we've done okay overall, because what it says doesn't worry us very much. We're good with, you shall not murder, for example, or you shall not commit adultery, because we may not do those, or at least not very often. But then we read what Jesus says just a bit later in this very chapter in Matthew 5. Notice verse 21. You have heard that it was said to the people long ago, says Jesus, you shall not murder, and anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. Well, perhaps I've committed murder after all. And then if you look down in verse 27, Jesus again, You have heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, perhaps this need that I have for righteousness is much more acute than I realized. And it's not just the so-called big things like murder and adultery that the Bible prohibits. Proverbs chapter 6 says, The Lord hates a lying tongue, a man who stirs up dissension among brothers. And then added to that are commands in the second part of your Bible, the New Testament that we have broken. And so in the most famous passage in the Bible about the Bible, 2 Timothy chapter 3, here's what it says. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful. Now notice these four things. It's useful for teaching and then rebuking, 
So the Bible, Scripture, teaches us. It teaches us God's standard. It teaches us what we are like and our failure to keep that standard. The Bible teaches us, and then having taught us the second thing the Bible does, and in order, is we are rebuked. And that's the word that's sometimes translated convicted. The Bible teaches me. Teaches me about God and God's holiness and God's standard. And as a result of that, and seeing my failure to live up to that standard, I'm rebuked. I am convicted. I say in your outline that God's word exposes our behavior. Now when I say that, behavior or actions are, by their nature, something we do, and they're often done out in the open. So in what sense does the Bible expose them? I mean, we do them. Generally, people see them. And therefore, how is it that the Bible is exposing them? People have already seen them, so in that sense, we might think they're already exposed. Well, here's how the Bible exposes them further. Our actions are exposed as being contrary to God's standard. If our actions are not compared and contrasted to God then they could be judged on a social basis. That is, whether something's right or wrong would be a matter of what most people in society do, according to societal norms, as the academics call it. What makes something wrong, according to the Bible, is that it fails to conform to the character of God. It's failure to live up to the image of God that we were made to reflect back to God. In fact, even when God gives his commandments in the Bible, including the, the Ten Commandments, he often couples that uh, recitation of things that we're to avoid and things that we are to do by emphasizing his, his character. In Exodus chapter 20, we just saw some of the Ten Commandments. But here's how it starts out. Exodus 20 and verse 2 says, I am the Lord your God. And then God goes on to say, now here are the commandments. Because I am your God, because I am like this, now you are to emulate that character in the way you behave. Sin is failure to act then as God would act in the same circumstance. Sin is failure to speak as God would speak. Sin is failure to think as God would think. And that's why the Bible says famously in Romans chapter 3, all have sinned. And then it gives a virtual definition of sin by saying, and fall short of the glory of God. You could read that, all have sinned by falling short of the glory of God, by falling short of the character of God, which is the standard. So the Word of God, the Bible, exposes our behavior. It exposes our sinful behavior for what it is, failure to conform to the will of God. But the Bible does that in order to show a more fundamental need that we have. And that's what I have secondly in your outline. The Word of God shows us what we are. It exposes our behavior and it also exposes our character. It exposes our behavior and it exposes our character. You see, friends, the way you see sin will affect how you see the remedy for it. The way you see sin will affect how you see the remedy for sin. If it's only what we do wrong, well then the remedy is this, just don't do that anymore. But the Bible teaches it's much deeper than that. Sin is not just our behavior, it's not just what we do, it's our character, it's who we are. And so the prophet Jeremiah said, the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Our condition, the Bible tells us, is such that we are spiritually dead. Spiritually, we can't do anything positive in movement toward God. The Bible says explicitly in Ephesians 2, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And notice I have are there as well, because if you have not come to Jesus Christ... And he has not given you life, spiritual life, then you still are dead in your trespasses and sins. So we need the Word of God then to expose what we are like, not just our, our actions, but it's much deeper in our, in our thoughts, in our attitudes, in our desires, 
at our very core in our character. And so Hebrews 4 says this about the Bible. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Now notice this. The Word of God judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. If you do not have the Word of God, then you will find yourself thinking, I'm okay. Because it's the Word of God that judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And that exposes not only our behavior, but also our internal character. So deep is this, that God says, unless your character is changed, and unless the broken relationship between you, the creature, and sinful creature, and me, your holy creator, and God, unless that is repaired, then even the good things you do are seen by me as filthy rags. Isaiah chapter 64 says this, All our righteous acts are like filthy rags. Well, yikes. So what's the remedy? Do you remember I said how you see sin will determine what you see as the remedy for it? Now do you see how deep sin really is? And now do you see that you need a remedy that's beyond just get your act together? And so the Bible says when we have a relationship with God, when we are rescued from our sin and the penalty for our sin, we call that being saved. The Bible says in Titus 3, Christ saved us, delivered us, rescued us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. This then underlies what Jesus says later in the sermon, later in Matthew chapter 5. This idea that we are spiritually bankrupt, that we are poor in spirit, that we are in desperate need then of righteousness from God. This underlies what Jesus says in verse 20 of chapter 5. Notice what he says there. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. You see, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were the people who, at least from outward appearance, had their act together. So if it's a matter of just stop doing what you were doing and get your act together and, and keep a religious list of things to do, then the Pharisees and the teachers of the law were okay. But Jesus says your righteousness has to surpass that because that won't get it done. And the reason that won't get it done is because that doesn't get to the heart, literally the heart of the problem, which is our sinful character. God's word tells us what we are. Secondly, in your outline, then, our response tells us what we need. God's Word tells us what we are. It exposes our behavior. It exposes our character. But then we have to respond to that. So now, in just these brief moments, I've shown you some of what God's Word says about our behavior and about our character. And now you are faced with responding to that. And how you respond to that will determine whether or not you think you need righteousness. You see, if you respond to that saying... That's just preacher talk. That's just stuff people say on Sunday. That's for other people. That's for really bad folk. Then you won't see your need for the righteousness Jesus says we're to hunger and thirst for. Your response will tell you what you need. The way you see sin will affect how you see the remedy for it, as I said earlier. So what do we need? We need this righteousness as I say in your outline but we need righteousness in two forms the first is this we need to be declared righteous we need to be declared righteous now here's why I say that in Romans chapter 3 and 4 a book in your Bible in your New Testament called Romans and the two of the chapters in that book chapters 3 and 4 the language used in those chapters is primarily that of a courtroom. 
And in chapter 3, God gives an 18-count indictment of humanity and its sin. It's sin in thought and in word and in deed. Chapter 3 of Romans, an 18-count indictment against all humanity from God Almighty. So how can we, who are guilty before God then, be exonerated? How can we have a relationship with God since we have no righteousness of our own? And it's in Romans chapter 3 and Romans chapter 4. In this courtroom terminology, the Bible gives us this marvelous term, justification. It's also a courtroom term that pictures God, the perfectly righteous judge, passing his sentence on humanity, but then it tells us, now hear this, that he had someone else pay the penalty. And that someone was none other than God the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The penalty that belonged to us was paid by him for us. And when we believe in who he is and what he did, that he was God come as man and lived the life that we should have lived, died the death that we deserved, when we believe that, then God the judge looks at us not through our sin, but through his son. Thanks be to God. And that's being declared righteous by God. And so in Romans chapter 4, here's what the Bible says. God justifies the wicked. That is, God declares righteous those who are not really righteous. That's what it's saying. God justifies those who are, who are actually sinful. And it is their faith, that is their belief, in Jesus and in his life and in his death for them that is credited as righteousness for them. So what do you need? What do I need if we are spiritually bankrupt and we are really having the kind of people who behave and have the kind of character the Bible describes? We need righteousness and we need righteousness of the declared variety. But hear this. Those who have been declared righteous, the Bible teaches intensely desire to actually be righteous. You see, we could just stop there and you say, cool. Jesus declared me, God has declared me righteous because of Jesus. Thank you, God. Let's party. But the Bible spills a lot of ink talking about the fact that when God imputes righteousness, credits righteousness to individuals, he also imparts his Holy Spirit that creates an intense desire for us to not only be positionally righteous before God, but to be actually righteous in our behavior. Those who have been declared righteous intensely desire to be righteous. Now, how so? Well, remember, in these Beatitudes, the first one in verse 3 is, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. And then the internal reaction that we're to have, Jesus tells us, to recognizing that we're poor in spirit is that we mourn, verse 4, over our sin. And the things that the blessed person mourns over, that we saw a few weeks ago, societal sin and ecclesiastical sin, that is sin in the church. And now in verse 6, we not only mourn over our sin and society's sin and sin in the church, but we long to, in verse 6, see that sin be made right. To see it be righted. To see righteousness replace sinfulness. It's not enough, then, for the Christian, Jesus is telling us, to simply curse the darkness. I mourn about how bad I am and how bad they are and how bad it is. It's not enough to simply curse the darkness. Christians long to light a candle of righteousness. And yes, we desire to see the society meet God's righteous standard. We long to see the church as a whole meet God's righteous standard. But it begins with us individually. So we need to be declared righteous, I say in your outline. But I say secondly, we need to become righteous. We need to be declared righteous, and we need to become righteous. Remember I said God imputes 
the death and life of Jesus. He credits the death and life of Jesus to the one who comes believing in him. But then that person is given the Spirit of God so that that person now wants to be in reality what he is in his position before God. And that's why the Bible speaks of things like the old man and the new man. There was the old person that you were before you came to Jesus, and now is there, there is the new person with new de- desires. Ephesians 4 speaks of the old man and the new man. It says this, You were taught to put on the new self, and this new self was created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. So how does that happen? How do I, how do you become righteous from day to day? It's one thing for God to do this marvelous exchange of Christ's righteousness for my sin in this thing called justification. But how am I to actually become righteous from day to day? I can't make that happen since my condition is what we saw earlier. So who makes it happen? Verse 6 says that those who hunger and thirst for righteousness will be filled. But I want you to notice something. It doesn't say, do you notice, by whom? Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. By who? (laughs) Where's God, in fact, in these Beatitudes? God's only mentioned explicitly once, and that's in verse 8. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. But please follow this. In Greek, and your New Testament was written in Greek. In Greek, four of the eight blessings associated with these sayings from Jesus, four of the eight have what are called passive verbs. That is, when it says in verse 4, for example, the mourner will be comforted. It's not the mourners who comfort themselves. The mourners are not active in that. They are comforted by someone else. In verse 7, the merciful do not show mercy to themselves. In verse 9, the peacemakers do not declare themselves to be the children of God. And in our verse 6, the hungry and thirsty don't fill themselves. In all of these, it is passive with reference to us. It is someone outside of us who takes the action, and that someone is God himself. Commentators call this a divine passive. It's a passive verb with God as the unstated agent who does the action on the individual. It is God who comforts those who mourn, who gives mercy to the merciful, who calls the peacemakers the children of God, and it is God who fills the longing of the hungry and thirsty with righteousness. How does God do this? We become hungry and thirsty when we recognize who we are, and we respond rightly to what the Bible says we are in terms of our behavior and our our character. And then God grants a new heart of character to us. And then we actively pursue righteousness. Psalm 51. David, who wrote it, says this to God, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Having granted this heart that whets our appetite, we then, in response, actively pursue righteousness. We who are were dead before salvation, are now given spiritual life, and then God moves upon the heart of those who have spiritual life regularly, renewing their heart, whetting their appetite for righteousness. And then the Bible stresses that we are then to respond by actively pursuing that righteousness. I want to give you a few verses here, and I want you to notice the word pursue in these verses. Proverbs 15, the Lord detests the way of the wicked, but he loves those who pursue righteousness. Paul, who wrote a number of the books in your New Testament, wrote to his young protege, Timothy, and he said this to him, You, Timothy, pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, 
and gentleness. He wrote a second letter to Timothy, and he says this to him, Flee the evil desires of youth and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace, along with those who call on the Lord out of a pure heart. So do you see, friends, God's Word tells us what we need. And we are in great need because of our behavior, which stems from our character. And our response, then, to that exposure of who we are, what we are like, will determine whether or not we really think we need righteousness. The Bible says we need two kinds. We need to be declared righteous. We need to actually become righteous. And then the Bible tells us a third thing, as I have in your outline. The Bible tells us what we are. Our response will determine what we need. And our heart tells us what we want. Okay. So the Bible says this about me and about you. And I respond, yes, I need to be declared righteous. And yes, I need to become righteous. But from day to day, it's going to be our hearts that tell us what we really want. Do I hunger and thirst for this righteousness? A physical appetite is a good thing in a couple of respects. One of them is this. A physical appetite indicates life. I mean, think about it. Physically dead people have no appetite for food and drink. And spiritually dead people have no appetite for righteousness. They do have appetites, but they are the appetites of the spiritually dead. So even when a spiritually dead person shows up at church and cleans his herself up and looks the part and goes with the program, goes with the flow, here's what the Bible says in very graphic language. A dog returns to its vomit. Do you see, because this person is still a dog and has not become a sheep, <clears throat> this person has not become a child of God. They still have appetites, but it's the appetite of the spiritually dead. And the kind of appetite we have is an indication of the kind of heart that we have. The heart of an unbeliever seeks to satisfy his or her desires with other than God and his righteousness. But the believer has this, a holy dissatisfaction with the status quo. A holy dissatisfaction with the way things are. A holy dissatisfaction with where I am in my spiritual growth. And that is what gives us this hunger and this thirst for righteousness. Our growth, then, depends on having an appetite for that growth. If you have no appetite for righteousness, if you have no appetite to learn what righteousness is and to grow in that righteousness, then, friend, it's because you're spiritually dead. But if you're spiritually alive, then, you have that appetite and growth will result from that appetite. How do I know this? Here's what the Bible says, 1 Peter 2. Like newborn babies, crave pure spiritual milk. Notice the desire, the longing, the craving. So that by it you may grow up in your salvation. And this is the expectation of Scripture. It's the expectation then of God. For all of those who name His name that they are growing in their relationship with Him because they have this appetite for righteousness and it's becoming more intense day by day. When that does not happen, it's something to be chided, and the Bible actually chides. Hebrews 5. By this time, you ought to be teachers. But instead, you need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God's Word all over again. You need milk, not solid food, and here's why. The writer of Hebrews goes on to say solid food is for the mature who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. When we get to the end of our message, and believe it or not, there is an end to this message. But when we get to the end of our message, 
I'm going to give you some things to diagnose whether or not you have this hunger and thirst for righteousness. But as we go through here, I hope that you are asking yourself, does that describe me? Am I someone who wants the meat of the Word of God? The meat of the truth of God because I am regularly pursuing the righteousness of God? In the last verse of the last letter that Peter wrote, it was Peter who wrote this like newborn babes crave pure spiritual milk. And then in the last verse of his last letter, he says this, grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. If I'm going to do that, I've got to be somebody who's been born again and thus had imparted to me this desire for righteousness, this new heart that the Lord gives, that he renews for those who see their need and are spiritually bankrupt and humble themselves before him. And when that happens, these will be people who pursue righteousness and therefore necessarily hate sin. Psalm 97 says this, Those who love the Lord hate evil. I could go for a long time on that. I won't. But let me just say this, dear friends. We live in a culture in which evil is put before us regularly. Evil is paraded before us. And we become inured to it. We become desensitized to it. The stuff that we will watch, oh my, the stuff that we will pay to watch. Christian people say, you know, I'm going to go catch a movie. Now, I've gone to movies, okay? And I'm not the standard. And so it's not sinful to go to movies. But it is sinful to go to sinful movies. And let me tell you something, most of them fit that category. So the idea that because Hollywood is dishing it out, therefore it's okay for me to go and see, is not something that the Christian ought to have a mindset for. We hate evil. We don't feast on evil. We tend to look for filling, for satisfaction, to the longings in our hearts in all the wrong places. And so the prophet Jeremiah said this, My people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns, that cannot hold water. Dear friend, where is the hunger and thirst that God has naturally given us that's to be filled by Him And very unnaturally, sin intrudes and redirects our desires. Where is that desire to be filled? It's to be filled by God himself. And that's why the prophet Isaiah asked this question, Why spend money on what is not bread? And your labor on what does not satisfy? Listen, listen to me. And eat what is good and your soul will delight in the richest affair. Who does this? Who quenches this thirst? Who assuages our hunger? The psalmist tells us, Psalm 107, Give thanks to the Lord, for He satisfies the thirsty and fills the hungry with good things. Isaiah says in that very same passage, where he says, Don't spend money on that which won't get it done. He invites, Come all who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. Jesus said, John chapter 6, I am the bread of life. And he who comes to me will never go hungry, and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. And so Christians are to have hearts that have been renewed that indeed will then signal to us what do we really want. 
And what we are to want, I say in your outline, is God's character. Christians want God's character. To hunger and thirst for righteousness is to long for God. To seek the kingdom, as we will see in chapter 6 in the Sermon on the Mount in several weeks. To seek the kingdom is to seek the king. We long for his rule and for his presence. Like David did in Psalm 42 when he said, My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Like Moses did when Moses met with God on the mountain. And Moses asked this of God, Teach me your ways so that I may know you. Show me your glory. In verse 6 of Matthew 5, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be filled. God satisfies our desire. He's the one who fills. And he then changes us in the process. And you see that change in the next three Beatitudes. People who hunger and thirst for righteousness and have this insatiable desire to be like God will show that in a number of ways, and Jesus gives some of those ways in the next three blessings in this sermon. And we will see those in, in the coming weeks. So Christians want God's character, and then I say in your outline, they want God's character continually. Christians want God's character. They want to know God. They want to be like God, and they want that continually. Now, why do I say continually? One, because that's the way it's written in this verse. The thirsting and the hungering are written in such a way as to indicate a continual desire on the part of the believer. But the other reason I say that is that we see it in the, char in the characters that God gives us as models in the Bible. Among them, the Apostle Paul. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul said of himself this, I know whom I have believed. He's just making a blanket statement, I know Christ. But it's interesting that in Philippians chapter 3, notice what he says. He says, I know Christ on the one hand, but then he says, I want to know Christ. And the power of his resurrection. You see, friends, this righteousness is such that you cannot eat just one. You desire more and more to be filled. This hunger and thirst is evidence not only of life then. An appetite, a hungering, and a thirsting is evidence that we are alive. That's a good thing. But it's evidence not only of life but of health. One of the first symptoms of, weak, of sickness is loss of appetite. And one of the first signs of a return to health is a return of appetite. Sin means we lose our appetite for spiritual things. So when somebody says, I'm just not growing, you can blame that on the preacher. Maybe it's the preacher's fault. Maybe it's the church's fault. The first place you should look is at the sin that has removed your appetite for righteousness. You see, friends, a banquet of the Word of God is only helpful to the hungry. It is only helpful to those who have come to eat. If it were not for hunger and thirst, we could not live and work. If we could live and work without knowing that we need food and water, we would kill ourselves. This pain, then, is a sign that something's wrong with the body. So hunger and thirst are signs that something is needed by the body. Hunger and thirst is nourishment for life and service. And the same is true for a hunger and thirst for righteousness. It is a good thing that we regularly long to know God and to grow in Him. Consider this. We tend to prioritize, do we not, the physical over the spiritual. Paul said bodily exercise profits little. Didn't say it profits nothing. So I'm not saying don't exercise. Good for you. But the Bible says it profits little. But godliness gives great gain, he says. And yet we tend to prioritize the physical. 
We're willing to undergo pain in order to achieve physical results. We're willing to have our bodies examined by a doctor. Let me ask you this. What if your pastor were to say, just like your medical doctor has you in for a physical, let's get together and do a spiritual? What would you say to that? Dude, mind your own business. So how do we know whether we're hungering and thirsting for righteousness? Let me give you some questions to examine that. We'll be done. Ask yourself, is righteousness a priority? When we say a priority, that means you put it prior to other things. You arrange your life in such a way that the pursuit of growth in godliness is a priority. So you're reading the Word of God regularly. You're attending classes that will help you learn the Word of God. Our Bible Institute starts next month. We'll be advertising those classes. I'll see you all there. Ask yourself, is it a consuming passion? Is it a priority and so that I arrange my schedule so that I can engage in disciplines that will help me in this regard? And is it a consuming passion? You've got consuming passions, don't you? Think about your hobbies. Think about your next vacation. Forget that. You always think about that. Think about the things you think about. Those are the things that are your consuming passions. And the question is then, is it a consuming passion? Is it something that I think about and meditate on regularly? Third, do you expend effort for it? You prioritize it, but then you actually expend effort for it. Willing to be even inconvenienced because it's that important. Let me ask this way, another way, a fourth way. Are you willing to be embarrassed for the sake of righteousness? What do you mean? Willing to be embarrassed for the sake of righteousness. Here's what I mean. Are you willing to have someone who is close to you say to you, you don't appear to be walking close to the Lord? That's embarrassing, isn't it? For somebody to say to you, you know, you appear to be giving yourself to other and lesser things. You appear to be neglecting the things of God and pursuing the things of the world. Do you have anybody in your life who could say that to you? Are you willing to be embarrassed for the sake of righteousness? I say this in your take-home truth. Christians are people who are satisfied in Christ. And so they always desire to be more like Christ. You see, we have the satisfaction of knowing Jesus. And if we know Jesus, you can never know Jesus enough. And so they always desire to be more like Christ. Dear friends, all of that starts with this impartation of the Spirit that gives us a desire for the righteousness that comes from God. Now, as I've gone through all of this, we're going to be done here in a moment. Just stay with me these last couple minutes. As I've gone through all of that, some of you are sitting here and you're just kind of going through the motions. When's this guy going to be done? None of that applies to me. I don't care about any of that. And if that's the case with you, it is because you came into this room with a heart that is spiritually dead. Your heart needs to be made alive. How is it made alive? When you come to believe in the person and work of the Lord Jesus, he imputes his righteousness to you and he imparts his spirit to you and creates this desire for you to grow in him. Now, how does that happen? You need to realize that you're a sinner. Recognize that Christ died for you and he died for you because he first lived for you. Repent, Lord, I want to follow you. I see the problem with my own way. I see the problem with my own heart. I recognize that I'm in spiritual poverty and spiritually bankrupt. 
And so I repent. I'm going to go your way, not my way. Receive Jesus Christ into your life. We're going to bow in just a moment. And when we do, if you came into this room without a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, that can be established right now in this sacred moment. And he promises to give you his Holy Spirit that will create that desire in you. And those of you who have done that, but who may have grown cold on the Lord because entangled in the things of the world, his Spirit is tugging at your heart, saying to you, I have not thirsted and hungered for righteousness. But you can confess that. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sin, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Let's bow together. Lord Jesus, our Master, our Creator, our Lord, our Savior, thank you for your powerful words. In just a few words, Lord, you penetrate our hearts. Blessed are those who hunger and who thirst, but who hunger and who thirst not for natural things, but for supernatural things, the righteousness of God. Thank you for your promise. They will be filled. Lord, once we have had a taste of your righteousness, we hunger and we thirst for more. Lord, we confess that our sin is still with us. And we can still become distracted. And some of us have. Oh, Lord, forgive us. Use this time to draw us back. I pray right now that your people are doing business with you. And I pray for any who came into this room seeking their own righteousness, thinking that they're okay because they compare themselves with themselves and with others, but not to the standard, namely you, our God. That now they have recognized how spiritually bankrupt they are and how in desperate need they are of a righteousness that's not their own, but comes from the one who alone can give it, the Lord Jesus. That you will give them your spirit, causing them to desire to be in their behavior what they are now in their position then, before you if they come to Jesus. Draw them to yourself. And may each person here be a life that glorifies you in our hungering and thirsting for righteousness. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.